Hey, and welcome to Basecamp. This is a podcast fitting within the overall ministry and mission of All Things All People. And I am the executive director of All Things All People, Jeremy Jenkins. Here at ATAP, what we affectionately call All Things All People, uh, our mission and ministry and the whole reason that we do everything uh, is to explore the darkest places and worldviews and to equip Christians to engage them with the gospel. And so this podcast is just one small way that we do that. And the way that we go about it is that we feature um, Christians who through their own adventures, ministries, studies, whether academically, theologically, uh, pastorally, or maybe just some experience that the Lord has led them to and through uh, line up with the mission of ATAP, of going into the dark for the sake of the gospel. And this episode's guest is Dr. Joel Mutamale. As you're going to hear in just a few minutes when I introduce him, uh, he is a uh, really impressive guy. Um, You can follow him at Mutamale on Instagram, um, where he does a ton of great content, answering and addressing questions and really difficult topics theologically. He works for Proverbs 31 Ministries uh, with a woman you might know, uh, Lisa Turkhurst, um, as well as doing a ton of other stuff. But the reason why he's on the episode today is that he, as a New Testament theologian, has studied quite extensively an area of theology that unfortunately is largely neglected by the evangelical church, which is... um, the spiritual world, the supernatural realm, so to speak, and and even more specifically, the origin of uh, particular spiritual beings, namely demons and and all of the other spiritual beings that kind of come with that topic. And so uh, Joel um, and I have a fantastic conversation that you're going to hear just in just a second about that. And the aim and the goal, of course, in having him on is to help those explorers and evangelists who uh, love the mission of ATAP and are seeking to go into the dark to understand better what it is that's going on in this uh, unseeable, untouchable uh, spiritual world that we're in the midst of that I always like to tell people is just as real as the physical world, even though we can't see, taste, touch, and smell it. And so unfortunately, we, we've been tricked as Western Christians into thinking that somehow the spiritual world is less real than the physical world um, because we can't test it, but that's just not true. And so you're going to hear that from Joel and it's going to be an amazing conversation. I did want to note though, uh, you're going to hear me mention another person in this interview, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, Dr. Uh, Heiser was actually uh, Joel's doctoral supervisor, one of them, along with another man named Patrick Schreiner. Um, and Dr. Heiser uh, has, for the last five or 10 years, become a really prevalent voice actually in this conversation about the unseen realm, which is actually a book that he he himself uh, wrote uh, called The Unseen Realm. He, he's written extensively on angels and demons and uh, a, t- a topic that by no means is new, but he did an amazing job of bringing it back to the forefront called the divine council idea, which is um, based off of uh, some things found in the Old Testament that explained that, you know, maybe there is a hierarchy to the spiritual beings um, that sometimes we as Christians are are tempted to just kind of all lump together. Well, Dr. Heiser, uh, who is a privileged scholar in his own right um, and has made a huge impact on uh 
on really uh, evangelical Christianity in the last five or 10 years. He's been struggling with pancreatic cancer. And in, in the course of this episode, Joel and I actually mentioned that, and I mentioned that we should be praying for him. Well, well since we recorded this episode, um, really actually shortly after we recorded this episode, uh, Dr. Heiser himself uh, posted on his social media accounts um, that things were not looking good and uh, that the prognosis is um, quite dire and uh, and that in all likelihood, uh, you know, he'll, he'll be going uh, home to the Lord here soon. And so I just wanted to make a, an extra note, no matter where the timing of this episode is, um, I'm recording it a day before it publishes, or I'm recording this intro a day before it publishes. I, I just wanted to uh, invite each and every one of you um, to be in prayer for Dr. Heiser and his family. Um, on our old podcast, uh, the ATAP podcast, uh, Dr. Heiser was actually a guest of mine, and he was uh, nothing but uh, friendly and warm to me, um, Was has always been very encouraging to me anytime he and I bumped into each other in the world of social media. And uh, and so on account of uh, the, the influence that he's had, but then also just the character that he's demonstrated, and then also the influence that he's had on, on uh, uh, this episode's guest, uh, Dr. Motamale, uh, I invite you to be in prayer for uh, for Dr. Heiser, um, and his family as they go through this really horrible time. And so, um, so with that in mind, uh, I'd love to invite you to turn your attention to this topic now that, that Joel and I have the honor to talk about, which, uh, was, is, is so important to Dr. Heiser. And I hope that it's important to you because as you're going to find out when you begin to, to really find the answers to some of the questions about, so these spiritual beings, these angels, these demons, these sons of God that we read about in Genesis, um, who are they and what are they? You'll actually begin to see that the spiritual world that we are operating in and around is actually so much more rich and vibrant than we could ever imagine. And I, and I hope that today's episode uh, gives you just a small step towards developing an even greater understanding of that. And so with that, let's turn our attention to the conversation uh, for this base camp, Dr. Joel Motamale. So our guest today, is the director of theology and research for Proverbs 31 Ministries, where he works with well-known name Lisa Turkhurst. Um, but he's also, uh, so many other things, part of the teaching team at Transformation Church in Charlotte. And just being local to Charlotte, I can tell you he, he preaches, it seems like, all over the place in Charlotte, and he's, he's well-known in our community. Uh, he earned his PhD under the guidance of doctors Patrick Schreiner and Mike Heiser, where he began to work and write on some of the topics that we're discussing today. And uh, from following him on social media, I know that he can also often be found hooping and uh, watching the Chicago Bears and constantly writing and working in the area of New Testament theology. So it's a lot of fun and my honor to have on Dr. Joel Mutamale. Um, Joel, thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, uh, so much fun and an honor. Thanks, to have Jeremy. You on. I appreciate it. And thanks for the shout out for the hooping because um, I think some of the best theological ponderings take place uh, when you're on the court and being humbled by the fact that, you know, your body yeah. ages and you can't quite move the way you used to. And so, what better things to think on but the things of God? Yeah. It seems like every time I see you uh, post about that is it seems like it's always, and I have these too, you know, even pre-show we were discussing just be, being in, in our mid to late thirties and becoming more and more aware <laughs> of the fact that we're not as young as we used to be. Um, and so I, I kind of had a feeling that that was the vantage point that you had because I'm the same way. Like every time I do anything physical and I remember how easy it used yep. to be, um, 
and now it's just yeah yeah so there's a lot of theological uh, ponderings to be had when you realize the the fragile nature of man and and the uh the the losing of of our youth and all yeah. of that so yeah i can see it though jay packer it. but i imagine you probably still you probably still yeah move, i was gonna yeah. yeah i do move uh jay packer has an incredible little tiny book that he wrote i think right before um he ended up going to be with the lord it's called weakness is the way and um i just yeah. uh the older i get i resonate i mean this is how bad it is right now i have a reading chair in my home study i'm, I'm staring at it right now and uh, my wife for christmas got me the leg compression deal so because it's like a whole routine now you know uh and so i have like my theology Mm -hmm. stack of books that i'm working through and uh once i get done hooping i'll come home i'll get in the compression sleeves and it's like a 45 minute routine to just get my body ready to walk the next day um and it and it just humbles me and i sit and then i get humbled theologically as i read some incredible scholars uh so yep it is the way of life yeah yeah Yeah. and you know you, you mentioned uh, sitting in, in your home study, um, of which, you know, I, I constantly see you working in on Instagram. If no, if somebody's listening to this and they don't already follow you at Mutamale on Instagram, um, one of my favorite follows, and it's really encouraging to see all, just all of the things that you're constantly working on. Um, like right now in the process of writing a book, but then, you know, I think your first foothold in the, the world of social media and whatnot was working with Proverbs yeah. 31, um, just for my own sake, because I'm fascinated at the, at the notion, like what, what is it that you do as director of theology and research for, uh, yeah. 31? So some of your audience is probably wondering, wait a minute. I know the Bible enough to know that Proverbs 31 is a chapter about, uh, women, you know, this, the, and, um, yeah. and Joel's a dude. So how does, how does that work? Uh, yeah. and so, yeah, I mm-hmm. am one of uh, six guys now, uh, of ministry of over 65, uh, people. And it's amazing. I actually think I get some, I've learned so much more, uh, biblically, theologically sitting under the leadership of some incredibly wise, uh, Bible teachers. Uh, my role is to step in and to help bring some oversight to theological development and research on the various projects that we work on. So we've got an app called the First Five app where we kind of work exegetically through all the books of the Bible. When it first launched uh, after the first five years, we actually, um, actually it was about six to be honest, we worked through every book of the Bible. And so every uh, study that we do, we do a uh, companion Bible study guide that goes with it. So on the in the early days, I was actually writing those guides uh, with it. Today, I do more editorial work as we have a team that's kind of working uh, on the direct content. And that frees me up a little bit to do more teaching uh, for our teams. I do kind of theology uh, seminary level introductions to every new book, the Bible that we're jumping into. Um, and then uh, a part of it also is uh, a podcast series that we started a couple years ago called Therapy and Theology with myself and uh, my co-host Lisa Turkhurst and uh, Jim Kress, who's a licensed uh, professional therapist. And we take tough topics that the church and um, Christians in general are walking through. And we do our very best to present it in a biblically theological, faithful uh, perspective, but also bring in uh, common grace stuff like therapy um, that God has gifted us with and uh, apply that to our lives. And so uh, all that to say, I spend the majority of my days studying fascinating uh, topics, research topics, and then figuring out how we're going to present it, whether it be through writing or video audio teaching, uh, and then also reviewing other content that we need uh, to go out into the space. Well, awesome. Well, so the reason why I wanted to have you on, apart from just the fact, you know, um, 
you know, I sent you a message the other day. You were, you were celebrating the fact that, you know, you were mentioned in like outreach <laughs> magazines, like 20 rising voices in, in the, the Christian world. And, and I had actually just said to my wife, I said, it seems like Mutamale is really becoming more and more well-known and respected and for good reason, because, you know, from my vantage point, it seems like you approach everything from a really studious aspect of like approaching it through a New Testament theological perspective. And I wanted to talk with you, not just because of that, but because in the midst of all of that, in the midst of how you approach things and, and how you do approach things with a, a humility and a studious nature, you have worked in a field theologically that I think listeners of an ATAP podcast can really benefit from, which is you wrote your dissertation uh, at Midwestern um, Baptist Theological Seminary, and the title is Paul's Oikos Terminology in Ephesians, Babel in Deuteronomy 32 as background text, which to the average listener does not sound like anything <laughs> that they can relate to. But you and I both know is it's actually um, diving into the, the world of like the rich spiritual world that um, that unfortunately in the, in the evangelical sphere, like we just haven't had enough good teaching on and specifically things like angels and demons. Yeah. And what does the Bible mean in Genesis when it says we should create man in our right. image um, and all of these things that the church has historically I- explained away. And so I wanted to have you on because I think so many of um, my followers and listeners can benefit from just having that theological perspective of like, what does the Bible really say about these spiritual beings and what is it, what does it mean for us? So how did you like, you know, in it, 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 that title is a little bit deceptive. I actually have a, a, a short excerpt that you sent me a couple months ago that I loved um, called God's Cosmic yeah. Family, the Sons of God, which probably alludes more for the, you know, for the popular listener of what, what you're writing about. But how did you come about that field of study and why is it that you wrote your dissertation? Yeah. So really where it came up is, um, and people can't see me uh, maybe on video, but you can see me, um, I'm Indian. Uh, and so I, uh, I'm Indian. My wife is white. Uh, we've got um, uh, mm-hmm. children that are biracial. They're half white, half Indian. Um, and you know the idea of this uh, multi-ethnic, beautifully diverse family that is the family of God has always been something that's very uh, been near and dear to me. Uh, and in the process, I was, I was like, I think there's got to be a strong substantive theological backing to it. And so uh, this is kind of what happens with me, Jeremy. Is I want the text to lead me to places of research and study and questions. Uh, and so a couple things that were always just curious to me were in Ephesians chapter two, particularly um, you know, in 18 through kind of 22, Paul's having this conversation um, where he's talking about how at one point we were enemies of God. Uh, and then all of a sudden there are these sojourners and strangers. There are these uh, foreigners that are not part of the people of God that are invited in to be part of the people of God. Um, and these people come together and they build the building blocks of what is going to be the temple of God. And so I thought it was so interesting that there is nations and ethnicities, but then there's temple language that's there. And in New Testament study, if you look at New Testament commentaries on Ephesians 2, which for my dissertation, I think I read 200 commentaries all on just that's you know and, and it was really interesting that i literally 99 percent of the commentaries are all going to take you to a greco-roman background which basically means that it's a new testament context where the greeks are there but then the romans have stepped in and so you've got both a greek or hellenistic background but you also have roman influence that's taking place and so i was like that's great but 
Paul's a good Jewish boy. <laughs> like Paul has yeah. deep Old Testament roots. So there's got to be some Old Testament in here. Mm-hmm. And as I was, I was actually Marcus Bart, um, the son of the great um, theologian Karl Bart, and, and he was the only one in all of these commentaries that I read that in one little passing line he wrote, and this has an echo of the Tower of Babel, and then he moves on. And I was like, wait a minute, what is happening here? And so that led me to, okay, there's temple language. There's this idea of the nations that are present. Uh, And then what's happening at Babel? Well, back in Genesis 11, you've got Mm -hmm. um, these people that all gather together and they build what is essentially a ziggurat. The Tower of Babel is uh, is a ziggurat. It's an ancient pyramid. And this pyramid structure would have been a uh, a spiritual temple where at the very top, and we've got in ancient Mesopotamia, we actually have um, archaeology that shows, you know, that this is the design and would have taken would have taken place. But at the very top of the ziggurat temple would have been a house, uh, a chamber for the God, I'm going to put that in quotes, the Elohim, the God, to come down and to reside. And so here we have the Tower of Babel, and you've got these people, and what they're trying to do is the commission for humanity in Genesis um, for Adam and Eve was actually to go out into the world and to spread the image of God out into the ends of the earth. And we have in Genesis chapter 11, total rebellion. Because instead of going out into the world, they build a temple and they try to force God to come down to them. It's a it's a sign of rebellion, of, of power. It's a sign of usurping authority. All of these things are taking place. And there's a, a consequence for what they do. And this brings me into uh, Genesis 11 and connecting it to Ephesians chapter 2, which uh, basically, uh, and we have to go to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. I'll just read that here really quick and then uh, we can move on. Uh, It says this, you have to read Genesis 32, 8 through 9 as the aftermath of the Babel event. So Genesis 11 takes place. God disperses the nations, you know, Um, they all lose the one language and they have to go out because they can't talk to each other. But this is what Genesis 32, 8 through 9 says. And this is the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of, I'm going to give you a Hebrew term here, the Bene Elohim, the sons of God. But then verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted mm-hmm. heritage. And so what we have in Genesis 11 is this idea of God as king, who is a good father, who has to uh, give discipline to his children that are in rebellion. And essentially what he does is he takes Israel, Jacob, as his personal prized possession, but all the other nations of the world, this is actually an act of kindness. God doesn't leave them alone. He doesn't leave them unattended. He actually takes his heavenly host, the angels, um, which is what the phrase, the sons of God, the Ben Elohim uh, is referring to, and he gives them a delegated responsibility over the nations. That delegated responsibility was not intended for these Ben Elohim to be the gods of the nations. It was intended for them to be guardians of the nations and to at some point point them back to Yahweh. And then we have something really interesting in Deuteronomy 4.19. It says this, and beware lest you, and he's talking to the Israelites, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, and then this phrase, the host of heaven, which you could literally just put and replace sons of God there, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them 
things that the Lord your God has allotted, that notice allotment language, has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And this, Jeremy, sets the trajectory for the entire Old Testament. You've got these um, people, these humans, that have taken to these supernatural beings, and they've actually given them worship, they've given them adoration, and they've substituted Yahweh as God and placed them in position. And then the real rebellion is a supernatural rebellion, because these supernatural beings accept it. They're like, this is great. I love this. I will be, I will take it on. And so they actually go into rebellion. So I'm going to connect some dots. What is Ephesians 2, 18 through 22? Uh, what is it? What is it talking about? It's actually talking about God as a father who's reclaiming his family that went into rebellion. And so these family members who submitted themselves to um, false gods, not that they're not uh, supernatural beings, but they're just not Yahweh, mm-hmm. these, false sup- uh, these false gods, um, they are coming back into the household of God. And it's really interesting because in Genesis 11, the building blocks of the ziggurat temple are bricks and mortar. But in Ephesians chapter 2, the building mm-hmm. blocks are the nations of the world, and they grow together to become a temple of God. And guess what? I mean, this is all throughout the New Testament. What resides in the temple of God? The presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And so you have that taking place. But but what my dissertation showed me, and this was kind of how you introed this all, was that for us, we view the supernatural world demarcated and separated as this component in the physical, earthly, temporal world as something different. The ancient peoples, uh, the context of the Bible was not written in such a context. The earthly and the cosmic, the supernatural, um, interconnected in a multiplicity of ways, and the one has a direct impact on the other. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much there. At, At some point in this conversation, I want to ask you about what you just said, the, the, the spiritual world. And I think that the, the, the necessity for a, a better developed pneumatology than most Western Christians have and, and, and what they believe about the quote unquote spiritual world. But before we get to that, you know, I teach an undergrad world religions class and um, I've, I've snuck, I've snuck some of this in sometimes uh, when we talk about yeah. Judaism and, and then uh, Christianity, just more so to just show my students that there's a, there's, there's other viewpoints, um, even within, you know, uh, evangelical Christianity. And the number one question that, that I always get, and it's a great question. It's actually, I think it it has to be asked of that viewpoint and the proponents of it, um, which is, so are we not polytheists then? Right. Because you talk about, you know, I teach on Hinduism and I teach on, you know, animism and, you know, anytime multiple, what, what you, you know, are describing as Elohim, multiple Elohim show up, we just classify that as, as polytheism in a really reductionistic way, mind you. But, um, so why then, uh, would you and, and, and guys like Dr. Heiser and, and whatnot, you know, what distinction is necessary then to not hurdle us towards a polytheistic worldview where Yahweh is just one? Yeah, of um, it, it has to deal with creation. It, um, it has to deal with the unique substance of who Yahweh is. So in all the other religions, you have this um, this. Uh, 
the substance is shared amongst these supernatural beings. That's where you have in Greek mythology, there's this battle with Kronos, and then you've got Zeus, and then you've got, um, you know, even Poseidon at different times trying to vie for power and, and authority. None of that is present um, in this way when it comes to the substance of who Yahweh is. Yahweh is unique. He's one of a kind. Um, there is no other Elohim that is like Yahweh. You know, and so uh, Yahweh in his uniqueness as the one and only Yahweh, uh, he he does create supernatural beings and human beings as part of, and this is the language of Heiser and others, uh, as his divine counsel. And this is where delegated authority is really important. Mm -hmm. And so you do have supernatural beings that are unlike anything that Yahweh is in total substance, and yet God in his kindness, he shares willingly parts of his attributes with angelic beings. There's a supernatural component with human Humanity, there are different attributes that he shares with us as the creator with the created, but it's not in um, the same substance, right? So the, a common misunderstanding, I think at times, is that there's these two powers. You've got good and evil. God represents good, and Satan or Lucifer represents evil, and there's this equal tension that's taking place. Well, that is absent in, in, in biblical theology. That's absent in the story of, of the scriptures. What you have is Lucifer as a created being being who is supernatural and has been given gifts by God and yet attempts to go into active rebellion against God and then he is punished you know he's then sent down onto earth along with his heavenly host and so the thought of polytheism i think is understandable because we've we've um we've grouped together ideas of all supernatural beings are all the same substance. They're all the same being. Right. Uh, but when it comes to Christian theology, there is no Yahweh. There is no equal and opposite of Yahweh. It's not a yin and yang idea of these mm -hmm. two good uh, of right. a good and evil that's, that's going against each other. There is only one Yahweh and yet Yahweh God in his kindness um, has creation and he gives them uh, delegated responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in a sense too, like one thing that has to be developed amongst most, most Christians, lay, lay Christians, and, and of course, even, you know, those of us in ministry is the idea that, you know, create creatio ex nihilo, the idea of creation out of nothing necessitates Yahweh being El Elyon or God mm -hmm. of all gods. And so it's not threatening. I feel like sometimes people, when they hear this kind of viewpoint, it it's intimidating because they feel as if we might be putting something or someone on the same level as Yahweh. And it's really, it, it, I, I suppose to a certain degree, it's that Western Christians specifically just don't have a place on their shelf for this type of interpretation mm -hmm. because we've always just assumed you have God and then you have angels and demons and everything else. And when you start talking, you, you know, you, you, you mentioned divine counsel and things like that. And people just, man, they're like, wait, it seems like you're elevating something too close to the place of Yahweh. And that's, that's really not the case. That's really not the case at all. I think Heiser says, um, you know, Yahweh is an Elohim. Not Elohim, but Elohim or no Yahweh. Elohim. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And so, and then also too, you know, um, that, that word Elohim, I mean, that's, that is the word, correct me if I'm wrong. That's, that's used to describe 
other regional deities, Baal and and, and other gods in the Yeah, Old it Testament. can be. Yeah, it can be. So also the Hebrew word Elohim is not so this is what we've done, even even and we this might be going too deep into it, but the Hebrew word um Hasatan, you know, it's literally translated in Job as the accuser. It's um there's right. there's there's actually no definitive article in front of it. And so the definitive article would actually present a title um of, of a person and that's not present. So really what we actually have is the um official um, indiv- uh, person, the title of a person who would act in this way, you know? Um, and so in right. the same way, Elohim, that Hebrew word, it's, it's, it's general. It, it talks about any and all supernatural mm-hmm. beings. Um, there's actually an interesting text here. Um, let's see if I can find it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we can go to Deuteronomy 32, 17. Um, and it, and it talks about this. It says they sacrifice to demons. I'm going to give you the Hebrew words here. They sacrifice to demons. This mm-hmm. is plural. The, the Hebrew word for demons is Shadim, not God. Now notice this. It's Eloha, Eloah, which is singular. To gods, Elohim, plural, they had not known. New gods, Hadashim, which is um, a throwback to the Shadim earlier, that had just arrived, which your ancestors did not fear. So here you've got Moses writing in Deuteronomy 32, 17, and he's very clear that there are Shadim demons. These Shadim demons are supernatural beings, Elohim, and yet there is God, singular Eloha, or a type, another version of Elohim, right? But God is unique. Right. He he is not, you know, all the other Elohim are not Yahweh, um, that they had not known to Hadashim that had just arrived. So you, you see the presence there. Mm-hmm. And what this does, Jeremy, and I think your listeners might be like, what is happening right now? What it's doing is it's 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 forcing <laughs> us to break Western constructs of mindsets that we have categorized the biblical story in because the biblical story was not written with the Western context in mind. The biblical narrative is not, it has an ancient context. It has a, an ancient Near Eastern context. And so if we want to be good students of the Bible, we really need to make room for the space and the context in which the scriptures were written and to not try to force our categories upon the text, but to live within the categories that the text itself implements. And then you've got biblical interpretation and application and the hermeneutical model, which then says, okay, now what can we retrieve from that and build the bridge of contextualization to our time? But this is why I think having this this discussion is so, so important because it helps us to see Mm -hmm. these distinctions. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you you know, you mentioned listeners, they they might have listened to this point and just gone, oh my goodness, what what is all of this, right? It, It brings us to the question, which I think some people would have liked to have even started this conversation with, but I feel like that, you know, that, um, that prior stuff is so important. I'm looking at, um, Dr. Mike Heiser's book mm-hmm. demons. Um, I, you know, I, I, I kind of glanced through it in prep for this and I, and I failed to mention actually, uh, thus far, um, because obviously I know he's, he's really important to you and I've had the opportunity of talking with him in the past. He's, he is, um, fighting yeah. cancer right now. And, um, and, you know, just for all listeners, um, be be in prayer for for Dr. Heiser. He's a he's a great man. He's contributed in 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 really just the last few years a ton to um, a lot of young Bible students, including myself and, and Joel. I know he's made a huge impression yeah. on you. Um, and so we need to be in prayer for him and his family. But I, I look at this book, and I and I, so then I after hearing all of that, 
I asked the question that I think a lot of people would want to ask. So, okay, so then what are demons? <laughs> you know, what are these things that we see really show up prominently in the New Testament um, as adversaries, as the as as part of you know the enemy's strategy for you know tripping Jesus up, and then even you know just continually showing up in the New Testament, but we don't ever get like a really good Webster's dictionary definition of who they are, what they are, you know, what's the deal with that. And then we just, so what, what, what we do, what we have, you and I have been discussing, which is we just find a a comfortable place on the shelf for them. And we put them there and we say, Oh, demons are part of the enemy's army. and, And that's all they are. So with all of this in mind, then what would you say to the, to the, to the Christian who, you know, wants to further their theological understanding of the spiritual world and therefore. Yeah. So again, I would probably take us back to Deuteronomy 32, 17. Um, In this passage, they sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods who they had not known, new gods um, that had just arrived, which your ancestors did not fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we can get super technical here. I'm going to try to refrain from doing all of that. But in the, in the old Testament, the concept of these demons, these shadim, um, are supernatural beings that are of a lesser. So there is this idea of category. There is categorical among mm-hmm. the supernatural beings um, responsibilities, categorical um, kind of ways that they act. And so one of the things is that the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, that are given over to the, to the nations to take care of that become corrupted are the gods of the nations. And so these are what Paul would give different language. He would call them rulers, principalities, powers. Um, yeah. He would use those languages. And at times, as a synonym, he would also say, yeah, and these are demons. That's what happens in 1 Corinthians 10, right. 20 through 22. This is what Paul says. No, I imply uh, that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Um, and he, the Greek word is daemonon there. I do not want you to be participants with demons, um, diominion. Mm-hmm. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So you have this sense that the, um, the gods of the pagan nations the gods of Egypt, the gods of um, of Mesopotamia, the gods of uh, uh, of Babylon and Assyria, are real, actual, supernatural beings that have limited authority and limited power in a supernatural sense. And so, when you get to the plagues in Egypt. Right, you got that story, and you've got Moses that steps before Pharaoh, and there are these magicians essentially, and they're doing all of these things. Um, there's a good sense that there is real um, supernatural activity that's taking place because there are real yeah. supernatural beings behind that. Now, notice what Yahweh, what God does. What God does is in each of the plagues, it's actually very technical in the plagues that he does. He uses the 10 plagues to attack 10 types of deities that would have been worshipped. And he shows it in the 10 plagues that he is superior to those 10 deities, to those um, 10 super supernatural beings. And those beings can't do anything about it. 
<laughs> they can't overcome o- overcome yeah. them. These are demons, right? There is another uh, view of demons as well in the New Testament, and this is something that Heiser uh, likes to emphasize. The, uh, the, the demons of the New Testament that are being cast out of people are a different type of category. Yeah. So again, we use, it's, it's in the same way in English when I can say, hey, I love my wife, but I also love Snickers bars. Like I'm talking categorically in different right. categories, right? Uh, totally different ways mm-hmm. of how I'm using the word love. So in the same way at times, because we don't have instant access to the Greek uh, behind it or the Hebrew behind it, um, we're glossing the word in a way to just categorically place them in the same space. So demons, when we're talking about Jesus, as he is casting out demons, you know, the the legion that go into the pigs and, and all this other stuff, uh, we're actually talking about all the way back in Genesis 6, You've got the story of the sons of God, and um, you've got the presence of the offspring of the sons of God and human women, um, and they're referred to as Nephilim. They're these giants. The gibberim is uh, in in Hebrew as well. And these uh, half-divine, half-human individuals, these giants, when they die, the supernatural aspect of them, their their spirits, um, essentially become demons. They s- still surface on the earth and they torment humanity. Uh, and Jeremy, I don't know, we've you and I have never had this conversation before, and so it's part of it's like I might say something you totally disagree with, and you can disagree with it, and we can have a conversation around it. But I've been paying attention to the work that you've done, and with especially with cults and um, with other religions and stuff like that. But I was talking to my oldest son. The other day, and he was at, he's super into Greek mythology and all this stuff, you know, Hercules and um, Odysseus and all of that. And I just was thinking back, I'm like, well, did Nephilim give the origin story for all of these beings? Like, like there is like, think about Mm -hmm. it, right? Like, did this just imaginatively show up sometime in human history that humanity had some creative ability to create worlds and to create these types of stories to make sense of, of the world and creation? Mm -hmm. I actually think I look back and go, no, this is all rooted in biblical history. And so they are using stories like, um, of Zeus and Hercules and these, you know, Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. I think we're talking about Nephilim here, you know? It's in the biblical narrative with Goliath. Right. We're talking yeah. about Nephilim, these giants. And so um, that's also present mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the work that, that I do with ATAP. And um, I I don't I, – I've drawn – at first it was Heiser and then just now consuming some of the stuff that, you know, I, I've seen out of out of your ministry, which this, for listeners who aren't familiar with you, this is actually like you, you very rarely ever talk about right. this kind of stuff in some of the work that you do. So some people who actually may be an avid follower of yours might be alarmed to find out th- that this is what you've done your work on, but it is a super important, like the reason why I wanted to have you on is like, this is a branch of theology that I have seen firsthand. A, the, the modern Western church has no understanding of and B we are we are dramatically hurt mm-hmm. by it because you know you mentioned the greek mythology and all of that it's not that you know in my opinion it's not that you know our kids can't be somewhat fascinated with that right because this is the world's stories but i agree with you i i, I you know it's this is what i do is i study other religions and other worldviews and i i am constantly amazed at the fact that long before human migration um different parts of the planet, different cultures, different complete worldviews. I mean, and you know, I mean, you just, you were just in India, like right actually a week before I was there. I mean, 
India, uh, there in India and in East Asia, like these places, they are as different from the United States as you possibly could get. But yet thousands and thousands and thousands of years back, long before human migration, we agreed on very few things. And that was that there were angels Mm -hmm. and demons. Like there is angels and demons present in every worldview, in every religion throughout all of human history. And I agree with you in total is that that is actually a great evidence of the fact that what the Bible says to be true about the spiritual realm is in fact true. In my master's degree, I wrote extensively on um on mm-hmm. ganesh uh a hindu uh, deity and actually there's there's a lot of ties that show that ganesh at one point was um what's called a vinyaka which is a vinyaka is a hinderer in south asian and east asian religions and that actually the first records we have of ganesh are as a demon like right. figure in, in, in an Asian worldview. And so you know, it's not startling. And I, I, you haven't said anything that I disagree with yet. And, uh, I doubt you will, because I, I have, I have seen this with my own eyes of like, no, this is real. And, um, and so, and I, and I think that's why people, you know, unfortunately it's hyper sensationalized yeah. often is that sometimes people hear the word demon and, and, and the, the stuff I post on social media and, and this podcast will probably dramatically outperform some others that I do simply because that's in the title, but people are interested in it for a reason, which is, you know, they feel like this is a real thing, but they don't know how to, how to explain it. And so, um, I'll, I'll stop and say like, um, and I don't know your opinion on, on this particular resource, but one of the best resources outside of Heiser and your work that I've come across is, um, the Bible project had a series on spiritual beings, which I think Heiser was actually interviewed in that, which, which I think Heiser was actually, uh, yeah, yeah. And so that's an incredible um, resource for people who want to begin developing an understanding of this. But no, I, I I think what the Bible says is more true than we realize when it comes to this. I think this is also why like Paul took it seriously. Paul took it mm-hmm. seriously. So you, I think we should take it seriously. I'd just point us back to 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 22, when he says like, don't take part in these pagan sacrifices. Why? Because these pagan sacrifices are associated with real, supernatural, malevolent beings that are hell-bent on the destruction of God's people. Um, and yet they kind of know that the end is up. There, there's the sense that on the cross, the, the mortal wound was delivered. But uh, there's the story of African lions at the very end of their life that they're actually the most dangerous. You know, right before they die, they basically have nothing left to lose. And so here we are in a time time post the the resurrection post the crucifixion and we've got a real enemy that is aware that their time is limited and that um you know punishment judgment awaits them and so they're going to be more deceptive more treacherous more accusative in in every way possible in order to trick us into giving our allegiance over to them and to join them in their destruction yeah and I think that's kind of, you know, as I know people, yeah, I really do. Um, you know, early you mentioned the stuff that, that I've been able to do with ATAP and I, I intentionally try and avoid the hyper sensationalizing of the demonic and spiritual warfare and things like that. Because, you know, like you, I've had quite a, quite a bit of experience with, um, a, a, a certain sphere within charismatic denominations and things like that, which, um, while I often find myself agreeing with their theology more than I would agree with maybe a reformed cessationist theology is, is the, the end that it gets to, which is just kind of like this 
everything is a demon or everything is an angel. And I just don't think that's the right way to go. But, but, you know, coming from a theologian's perspective, as somebody comes to the topic of spiritual warfare, which if they're following ATAP, then, then in all likelihood, this is on their mind. Like what does a, a healthy theology of the spiritual world and, and maybe even the topic of spiritual warfare, um, in your opinion, what does that look like as people, um, honestly just don't have a lot of good um, educational resources, we'll say, for the topic of spiritual warfare. Yeah, there's an excellent book by uh, a New Testament scholar that is actually um, done for like the everyday average Bible reader. Um, I think it's literally just called Spiritual Warfare. It's by um, Clint Arnold. Um, oh, Clint yeah. is just a, a brilliant, brilliant scholar. I referenced a lot of his work in my dissertation. But I would start with boundaries on what supernatural, on what um, demons uh, can do and cannot do. Um, mm-hmm. And so one thing that's super important for us to recognize is that um, these these enemies of God, these supernatural beings are limited in time and space. They are not unlimited. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. Right. Which brings balance to what you just said, like that over sensationalism that the, the I hate I, I hate is a strong word, but it <laughs> frustrates me when yeah. I hear like the devil's there. You know, mm-hmm. like Satan's around the corner. Satan's watching you. I'm like, you know, Satan's limited in time and space and yeah. in, in physicality even. And so in that, Satan's probably got to be real strategic <laughs> on where yeah. homeboy's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. and what he, yeah. what, what's happening. What is So so one is just being aware. That should be a comfort to us in one sense is that there, there are limitations to this, um, to, to these enemies. And yet they have been working throughout time and space and i'm we're talking all the way back genesis 11 all the way back genesis 6 right um in order to to master a craft to deal with and to deceive large populations of people with the limited resources and abilities that they have and so there are there and i'm going to use some words here that people might get a little bit panicky on but i do believe that the evil powers work within systems and structures to create um environments of, of toxicity and evil in order to undermine the good news of the gospel and in yeah. order to, to put the people of God in, uh, in an un, uh, in an, in an unhelpful position. So, so you've got that, you know, uh, in terms of, of how they work and in terms of what the spiritual warfare look like, uh, I would say some, again, I, I fight against the, the, the sensationalism of it. Um, I think, you know, we need to be really careful what we allow into our minds, what we yeah. consume. I'm even think, thinking and, and talking about things like alcohol and, um, and, and foods and narcotics. And, you know, like yeah. if you just look at, um, the rise of prescription med, uh, meds abuse, you know, fentanyl, mm-hmm. like all this stuff that's taking place. I think there's some real evil powers behind, behind yeah. this, because what's happening is it's taking away people's ability to think rightly. It's it's creating confusion in their mind. I heard a like a one uh, a great NFL football player um, who was talking and raving about taking drugs, hallucinative drugs yeah. that helped him yeah. uh, face fear, you know, and overcome his fear of death. And I'm like, that's dark power stuff. That's that's mm-hmm. that's the definition of demonic, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's there. So I think that the enemy works in three kind of categories. I think the enemy works to tempt us, to deceive us and to accuse us. 
Um, and so we need to be aware. We need to be looking out and looking for, and this is the, the subtlety of the enemy, right? And I'm not even talking about this super sensational stuff. I'm talking about like, yeah. uh, and I'm going to bring it way down to way down to the ground. Like you like really good food, you know, food is a good thing that God has given us. But, but when we are obsessed with food and it brings total satisfaction, that becomes a temptation that steals something from us. So we have to be aware of the way that the enemy is going to tempt us to buy into something that's actually good for us, um, mm-hmm. that when we take it to an ultimate is going to actually be destructive for us or to us. Yeah. And this is what Lucifer does in the Garden of Eden. When he presents the fruit, I follow an Old Testament scholar, Gordon Wenham. I think Wenham is brilliant. Like, why was the tree ever there in the first place, right? Well, I think, and I'm following Wenham, I think that the tree of life, the tree of good and evil, uh, of knowledge and the tree of life, those are actually there for Adam and Eve as rewards to to experience after they've done the Great Commission, after they've Mm -hmm. accomplished the task in front of them. And so that's why it's present. What the enemy does is short circuit the work and the yeah. vocation, the responsibility, and try to get them to buy into the prize before they've worked for it. And in so doing so, they sin. So the presence of the tree isn't like this um, sick trick that God had for yeah. them. Like, I'm going to just set you know the gold in front of everybody so that you can steal it. It's like, no, this is the reward. You know, this is what's waiting for you, but you need to have it at the right time. And so when the enemy works, the enemy works, I don't think more, more often in, um, obvious, like crazy demonic evil stuff. I think more often than not, it's actual subtle. It's taking Mm -hmm. good stuff that we overindulge in. It has vestiges of the gospel. It has um, aspects of of humanity that we actually value and love. You know, I would take something like sex. Sex is a really good thing. Sexuality is a really great thing that God has gifted us with. But when that becomes a defining identity marker of what makes you a human, then that thing becomes destructive to you because yeah. now my the ability to have sex or sexuality you know this is the the roman world it becomes a marker of freedom and so you're having orgies and doing all these kinds of debauchery that's present mm-hmm. uh, and that's demonic there is there are dark forces behind that and notice how they've taken something very good and holy in the confines of how god intended it and then strips the boundaries and barriers so that it can be like fire that just consumes mm-hmm. us yeah, I I completely uh, agree wholesale with what you're saying because I think, um, and I think I had this this opinion viewpoint before I really started doing some of the things that I do now. But now it's almost like what I find myself constantly trying to convince people of is like, yeah, s- every so often you know spiritual warfare and the demonic will look like what it looks like in the movies, right. but more often than not, like when we see demons in the New Testament, right? What are the things that always accompany them? Self harm, right? The hatred of the body, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, d- drunkenness, like you mentioned, drunkenness, orgies, right? The fruit of the flesh, right. and so you know we all look for when we hear spiritual warfare and we 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 look for these crazy signs like these these power encounters, which is the term often used for used for it in, 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 in a charismatic tradition. And it's like, there, yeah, that, that might be there from time to time, but normally like you even mentioned like environments laced with toxicity and negativity and discouragement. And it's like, I don't think the church has done a good enough job. And, and this is the beauty of this field of study, which, you know, guys like you and Heiser and so many others have begun doing, which is helping people see the whole world 
is like what we see in Daniel is, which is that there is a war in the heavenlies. And so, you know, no, there isn't a demon behind every uh, bush and an angel behind every cloud, but any time evil is at play, right, there, there is warfare to be done there. And you don't have to wait for, you know, something that looks like, you know, the exorcist or something like that to believe that, you know, spiritual warfare is happening. And and then I guess my, my last question for you, because, I, I, you know, you, you're not just an academic, you know, you are obviously involved in church ministry and, and, and ministerial teaching and preaching. Um, probably the area that like, I have sought to understand myself because I'm not naturally like, I hate to say it because I'm a pastor and, and like do all the things that I do, but like, I'm not naturally good at praying. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, I really struggle. My wife is, is, she has the gift of faith. And, and so she just, man, she has this, this naturally vibrant prayer life. And when I look at instances like Daniel, where the angel comes and says, Hey, there's a war in the heavenlies and your prayers have actually fueled me to get to yeah. you. Right. And we see things like prayer and fasting in your opinion, as we bring this even further down to the ground level, because what we want is for people who've come to podcasts like this and ministries like mine and yours, you know, we want them to be able to walk away with like that. Not, not that we want to make it super practical, but this is super practical. How, in your opinion, does things like prayer and fasting and devotion to the apostles teachings and the breaking of bread and and so on and so on, how do these things actually factor into this spiritual world that it's not compartmentalized? We are in it. Like we actually live in a spiritual world it, it, you know, in this moment, how do prayer and fasting and, you know, just our faith factor into that, that, that aspect of it? Yeah, I think it's multifaceted. I think one that, um, that prayer, like, let's just talk about prayer for in general for a second. Prayer in the ancient world was something that in the Greek and Romans and even in the ancient Near Eastern world was something that was used as a leverage point by these um, false gods in order to um, leverage against humanity. So like if you wanted something, you, you would have to go through all these hoops, right? You'd have to do these sacrifices. You'd have to go through this. You have to go through that. And, and you're praying just to gain their attention. Just to just to have the hope of maybe they they just catch a glimpse of you for a second. So it, prayer for the ancient world was like it was a dehumanizing aspect for them. You know, they're actually trying to gain their humanity um, by having the gods acknowledge them. Totally different in in Christianity. Totally different in in our faith, where prayer is a gracious gift to actually let us know that there is a God who is aware. And he is watching and he is observing and he is God with us and present throughout human history. This is the story of God in Eden. He he does Adam and Eve don't go out go, don't go after the fall and like and chase after him. God seeks them out and he questions them. You know, God is aware of what's taking place. And so I would say one is that that we need to just kind of recognize something that I don't do well is just recognize like, wow, prayer is a is a position of power for the for the believer. And that position of power is not in something that we do, but an awareness that God hears. You know, yeah. and so that is is shaping. It's life changing, uh, and then how that works in the supernatural world uh, is that prayer for me is uh, is something that lets the enemy know that we are tapped into the reality of the cosmos, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so again, there's a there there is some strategy that's taking place when you and I pray. 
when we participate in Ephesians six and the armor of God, which the which you know the majority of those are defensive weapons, prayer is this thing that's almost this transitionary thing that is both defensive and offensive. And and as we pray, it's like we're opening up the battle lines of communication, and that that open line of communication changes the atmosphere for the way that the enemy works. It changes the strategy, it changes all of that. So I think in Daniel, what's taking place is um, the enemy's like, um, you know, like crap, <laughs> like things, things yeah. got to change. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he's aware, they're aware, the people of God are aware. And so now we've got yeah. to, to, to shake, to shake things up. And so um, prayer is a gift, man. It's, it's a gift mm-hmm. for us. It's both something that is changing us as well as it's changing something else. Often we think of prayer physically. And I love that you asked this question v- very like few, like I've never really heard this preach that prayer is a supernatural act, you know, mm-hmm. that is changing something spiritually. And I think retrieving that is, is really important. Yeah. Well, I, I completely agree. And, you know, not in this interview and, and not in really anything I've seen out of your, your theological work and even the, the stuff that you do on <clears throat> social media. Um, have I seen anything that, hasn't drawn me, you know, further into a love of the word. And, and I think you and and so many people like you, but specifically you are a great example for listeners to, to, to understand theology matters. Um, you know, being a solid Bible student matters and it matters in a great deal, like to our everyday lives, because not just in the, the, the components of spiritual warfare and the things that so often come up in a, a tap types, uh, conversation, but, um, but yeah, you, you, you are a great evidence of that. And, and I, and I'm so appreciative as I'm sure the listeners are, um, you know, people need to go follow, uh, at Mudamale on Instagram, go to the website, um, Joel does speakings and, and follow his, his, um, wife. Um, uh, what, what is her handle? Cause I almost it, Indian wife, almost Indian wife. <laughs> um, and she's hilarious. And as you mentioned, uh, pre-show the dichotomy, uh, disparity between <laughs> what you, you know, you, uh, doing all of this theological stuff and then her, uh, posting hilarious reels and things like that is just an important, um, important thing I think people need to see. But, um, but Joel, I, I, I'm so appreciative of you, man. And, you know, I, I, I told you at the beginning, um, you know, you being on lists like what Outreach did and, you know, being really well known around the area that you and I both live in of, of here in the Southeast, I think is indicative of, um, uh, a faithfulness that you've demonstrated thus far to get you here, but then also too, I just think God has great plans for you. So I'm so appreciative of your time and your wisdom speaking into this um, and just, uh, you know, being, being a friend of mine and, 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 and ATAP and everything else. So thank you so much for doing this. You bet. Such an honor for me. Appreciate it, bro. Yeah.